The most obvious fact about uh, memory is that it's full of facts. <laughs> and then I then go on to say, the, neuros the people interested in the neuroscience of memory refuse to deal with this fact. <laughs> that is, the, ne the neuroscience of memory isn't even wrong because it doesn't even attempt to explain the most basic thing about memory, which is that it's full of facts. Welcome back to Cognitive Evolution. I'm Cody Calmers, and this is my show about the personal side of the intellectual journey. All right, so today's guest is a gentleman named Randy Gallistel, and his official title is Distinguished Professor Emeritus in the Department of Psychology at Rutgers. But really, uh, what he has been doing for, as far as I can tell, the majority of his career is pissing off neuroscientists and making broad claims about the things that they are overlooking, particularly in the neuroscience of learning memory. And the problem with these claims is not that they are broad, but that they might actually be, they might actually be correct. And um, yeah, so I had a cool conversation with Randy. He was a lot of fun to talk to. But when I was sort of going through it, it was a little, I was like, okay, how, how, do, I, how do I want to bring this to the world? And basically what I think happened is that we had two separate but related conversations. And uh, one of them was about the sort of story behind Randy's experiences and how he got to sort of develop them. But then we, we sort of left that behind for, you know, getting further into his thoughts about what this, what, what his sort of general scheme of theories means and, and, and where it's, what, what it looks like for neuroscience. And so that's what I'm going to be presenting in this episode is that latter sort of portion of the, of the conversation. And where I came to it from was this book that I read a few years ago called uh, Memory in the Computational Brain. I think it was published in 2009. And basically, you know, we, we sort of get into this, but it's about how neuroscientists have overlooked the fundamentals of symbolic cognition in the way they understand their, their brain basically too focused on connectionism and, you know, associations um, and, 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 you know, sort of synaptic connections, all that sort of stuff, and not really taking seriously the, the, the idea that, well, w what's happening in the mind is people have facts and they're conducting reasoning and there's things that are fundamentally symbolic processes. And so this is something that he's really taking neuroscientists to task, to task on. And uh, so that was, that was 2009, uh, that book. But then his most recent sort of iteration of this argument comes from a 2021 paper called The Physical Basis of Memory in the journal Cognition. And um, so that, that's, that's sort of his most up-to-date of, of that. And then another uh, paper that I'll just point, point you to, if this is something of interest to you, is, is a paper also published in 2021 called The Molecular Memory Code and Synaptic Plasticity, a Synthesis. And that is by Sam Gershman at Harvard. And uh, the following week... Um, if you're listening to this, the uh, I, I'll be featuring my conversation with Sam and we touch on what he thinks of, of Randy's work and all this sort of stuff. So at any rate, uh, in this episode, I present us diving into the theory of how Randy has made a career upsetting neuroscientists. And then I'll, I'll publish a follow-up episode, which if you, if you want to sort of dig into the story and the sort of personal aspects of, of what that's looked like for Randy, uh, then you can find that there. 
If you want to connect with my work, the best way to do that is to subscribe to my Substack newsletter. Uh, I've got a lot of great stuff coming up on that. It's the best way to keep up with new Cognitive Revolution stuff. Um, I also have a, a, an additional series called Cognitive Redux. And the idea here is that I go back to old episodes of Cognitive Revolution and sort of give a backstory, a running, a running narrative on what the, you know, sort of the things that have stuck with me years later after conducting an interview, what, what that person said and, you know, sort of any personal relationship that I have with them or, or things that, you know, sort of part of the backstory of the interview. So anyway, you can find that on my Substack newsletter at codycommerce.substack.com. Uh, and thank you for listening. Without any further ado, here is Randy Gallister. So I do want to go back and, you know, touch on a little bit more of your work. So specifically this book, Memory in the Computational Brain. Um, let's maybe walk through the central argument of that, which I think, you know, you kind of touched on various aspects of it throughout this. But uh, you have this wonderful opening paragraph that I want to, I just want to read out here. Um, but it says, this is a long book with a simple message. There must be an addressable read-write memory mechanism in brains that encodes information received by the brain into symbols, as it writes, uh, locates the information when needed, addresses, uh, and transports it to computational machinery that makes productive use of the information that is reads. Uh, so can you kind of maybe like flesh that out a little bit? Like what does that process look like? What does a mechanism for read-write memory look like? And, and, and how can we be sure that, you know, this is for sure something that we're, we need to be looking for? <laughs> yeah. I mean, you're right. I mean, what more do I need to say? That's the whole book right there. <laughs> you're right. It is, that is a, a great, it's a long book. With some, and there you go. There's the message. And then there's, you know, 300 whatever you know papers what? to elaborate on it. The, you know the story about the Rabbi Hillel summary, right? That's Rabbi Hillel's summary of uh, the doctrines of Judaism was uh, well, it was basically the golden rule. But it was he said it should be something you could recite while standing on one foot. <laughs> uh, anyway, so that's the uh, that's the book. Um, well, so because. Because the computational theory of mind has basically banished behaviorism from most of psychology, um, and because neuroscientists are sensitive to that, these days uh, both psychology, almost all cognitive scientists, and most neuroscientists, though certainly not all, um, by, you know, they, they pay lip service, at least, to the computational theory of mind. But then comes the qualification. So the connections say, yes, the brain computes, but not like a computer. And because I grew up with computers and because com computer science was really new when I was starting out and because I found it absolutely fascinating and because I was building my own computers in order to run my experiments. Um, so I was exposed to computers, computing machines, both from an engineering perspective, a hands-on perspective, but also the theory of it and, uh, and Turing and um, the Chomsky hierarchy and so on. Um, and when the neuroscientists say, yeah, the brain computes, but it doesn't compute in the way in which a computer computes, 
I said to myself, uh, so can you say something about how you compute other than the way a computer computes? <laughs> because <laughs> because uh, I've been studying how machines compute, and as near as I can tell, the only game in town uh, is uh, the game outlined by Turing, right? Uh, You're like, well, I'm really excited to see your multi-gazillion dollar idea architecting a completely different uh, way of constructing a computational uh, machine based off these novel principles you're developing. Uh, Keep in mind, all these miracles about... So I was at the beginning, but first of all, there was already a very clear, mathematically precise theory about this, right? You could prove theorems, right, about things, and people were busy doing this. And... uh, and moreover, there were machines, and they actually worked. <laughs> uh, and in fact, every year they worked more impressively, right? Um, uh, and um, But the basic foundation, the conceptual foundation of those machines um, didn't change at all. I mean, what changed was the underlying engineering. Uh, they... they the physical realization of the concept, right? But from the very beginning, and in fact, once I, I read a lot in the history of things, going back to Babbage, I mean, Babbage had his symbols, right? And he had his arithmetic operations that uh, operated on the uh, symbols. And if you were actually programming computers, you learned that almost no matter what they did, even when they were processing text, it all was traceable back to this uh, CPU, which was basically doing arithmetic and logic. Uh, so that if you had a rith- if you had symbols and you had arithmetic and logic, and you had a way of storing the results of the computational operations, so that you could summon them back in the future, in the indefinite future, you had a computing machine. I mean, conceptually, the computer hasn't changed at all since nineteen. 19- uh, since the 1940s, since when Conrad Suso first did one in uh, Germany during World War II and, and the ENIAC at Penn and so on. Conceptually, uh, it's uh, the same basic machine, the same basic diagram. And, and it's very clear what each of these things does and, w- and in particular the fundamental role of the memory. Right? I mean, the, the best definition of a finite state machine is it's a Turing machine that cannot read what is written. Uh, Instead of focusing on the basically bogus issue about the amount of memory, it's if if it can't read what is written, it's a finite state machine. And there are all these proofs that there are a whole bunch of problems that uh, can be solved by a Turing machine that can't be solved by a finite state machine. Um, so when I would, I say, look, and again, this is reflects the idea of going back to the mathematics. And so you, another way of putting this is you can't neuroscience, like all sciences impinges on many other sciences. And when you impinge on some other science, you should learn that other science. You shouldn't start saying, I'm going to make it up on my own. I, I mean, the people who study cognitive maps, most of them seem to don't, not know anything about navigation. That is, they're kind of making up a terminology of their own and they're making up cockamamie stories about navigation. 
navigation is a well-understood mathematical topic and engineering topic and has been for several centuries now. And it's, if you're interested in the neuroscience of, of navigation, Try it's... It. We're, we're problem solved. Okay, good. That's all you need. <laughs> It's madness to, to sort of say, well, I'm just going to invent my own words and talk about this in my own way, right? When people have uh, have been there before you and learned painfully uh, an effective uh, conceptual scheme. So all of this applies to computing science as far as I'm concerned, right? Uh, people who do theoretical computing science don't think I'm studying what can be computed on silicone, Right. Uh, they, they, they think they're studying what can be computed. Period. Yeah. <laughs> right? uh, and and so, uh, the neuroscientists, if they say it's in some different way, right? Well, come on, guys, uh, stop. You know, there are no theorems. There are no. It's not as if there were some competing formalism that uh, said, "Well, here's another." formalism for computing, right? And instead they wave their hands, oh, it's analog, it's digital, blah, 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 right? Um, yeah, let yeah. me uh, let me see if I, I mean, so uh, uh, there's, there's a lot there and let me like take part of that and kind of rephrase it in the way that makes sense to me. And I think it's like kind of the same thing that you're, you're talking about, but basically like one way to understand what you're saying is that the way we approach the study of the brain right now dramatically underestimates the importance of uh, symbolic processes in cognition. So, you know, for example, in, in deep neural networks, you know, we have, you know, they, they work on these associative principles. And so if, you know, the neural network is looking at, you know, a bunch of examples from a game, for instance, and then slowly it's sort of finding its way to optimal ways of playing but the human brain and, you know, cognition is very different. So you can say to someone, you know, go through that door over there and they can go do that. And so that is a symbolic manipulation of their behavior. But you can't tell a neural network to go through the door for another reason than because there's no sort of single isolatable representation of the door. It's all distributed throughout the network. So uh, you're saying that for both, you know, kind of neuroscience, the way we formalize it and computationalize it and our understanding of how the brain works generally we have to be way more serious about where that symbolic capacity is coming from. Yeah, that's for sure what I'm saying. Let me come at it in a very different way from where I was. I don't know if you've uh, had a chance to read this uh, paper that I recently published called The Physical Basis of Memory and Cognition. Hmm. But um, in the opening sentence, as you can see, I try to work hard on opening sentences. <laughs> The opening sentence says, the most obvious fact about uh, memory is that it's full of facts. <laughs> and then I then go on to say, this, uh, now I'm leaving exact quotes, but then the substance of what follows is, uh, the, neuros the people interested in the neuroscience of memory refuse to deal with this fact. <laughs> that is, the neuroscience. The neuroscience of memory, I don't put, say this, but what I'm in, reading between the lines, what I'm saying is the neuroscience of memory isn't even wrong. 
because it doesn't even attempt to explain the most basic thing about memory, which is that it's full of facts. Right? So, Randy, uh, I'm assuming that you deliver all of your lectures on one foot, since you can summarize it in a sentence or a paragraph, and and then we can all go home, you know, shortly thereafter. <laughs> well, no, then they can all get angry and and put their fingers in their ears and so on. But but it's true that it. it, it, it Try it out for yourself. Corner some neuroscientist and ask him. So there's a tremendous amount of uh, experimental results showing it's not even remotely controversial these days among people who study this sort of thing, that uh, animals of all kinds learn the durations of the intervals that they experience. Okay? So that's a fact, right? A really simple fact, because a duration is one number, right? So, how do you store durations in uh, in uh, neural tissue? <laughs> Try it. See what happens. <laughs> well, you know, Randy. Actually, maybe maybe say, oh, it's a circuit property, right? You see, there's a whole bunch of synapses that they all change, and it's all it's spread across all those synapses. I say, okay, okay, it's spread across all those synapses. Can you describe the principle? Uh, by which it's spread. I mean, uh, is 10 spread in a different way from five? And so you just start leaning on them, right? And it's all bullshit. Uh, and that's why there's no, you go into a standard textbook and there's no attempt whatsoever anywhere. Candell uh, and Schwartz, right? 1500 pages. And you ask, well, where does it explain how you store a fact? It isn't in the index because it isn't in the 1500 pages, right? You say, but wait a second. I mean, I know my name. I know Sam Gershman's name. I know Harvard. I even know where Harvard is. Uh, I, I speak French. I speak English. Randy, what, speak you're, what you're not getting is that it's in the connection between all of the uh, the items in the index that, that the facts come out, right? It's not it's not one single thing. It's the connection between all of them. That's what you're not getting. Yeah, yeah. But that's, a, that's an article of religious faith, not an explanation, right? But I think, I think, you're, I think you're actually on to something here. I think you need to start your own podcast in which you corner neuroscientists and you ask and you grill them if you if you do that, I'll I'll set the, I'll I'll get the neuroscientists. I'll bring them. I'll put them on camera in front of you. I'll you know record it at the episodes. I'll put them on I would I would love to see you go yeah. after neuroscientists one by one and do okay, this cornering well, yourself. I've been trying to follow that strategy, aided and abetted by a few friends, and I can tell you uh, how uh, how it went in the most recent uh, one. So. A friend of mine, uh, Pierre Pica, who's a linguist in Paris, uh, but very interested in all kinds of questions. And he kind of knows uh, uh, many of the prominent scientists in, in France, uh, including Stan Dehan and uh, Dehan. And, uh, and, and as it happens, Jean-Pierre Changeux. You know who Jean-Pierre Changeux is? Well, he's probably in the half a dozen most famous molecular biologists in France. Uh, an all but Nobel Prize. He discovered uh, allo, uh, allosteric uh, interact receptor interactions, and he's also very much in the French uh, tradition of a public intellectual. Right, that is, he's not only done world class molecular biology, but he 
pronounced, he's written a book called Lam Nuhanal, which I think has been translated into English as the human, neuro, the neuro, neural human, neuro, the neural, that doesn't quite make sense. I read it in French, but, uh, but anyway, it's been translated in a big, thick yeah, book. Yeah. Uh, all, all about, you know, how we understand the, it's all kind of Descartes, right? Uh, we understand how the brain works and the brain is the mind and so on, all of which I agree with. I mean, I agree that we the brain is the mind. I don't agree we understand how the brain works. But anyway, um, Jean-Pierre arranged for me to debate. Um, I mean, yeah, uh, Pierre Pica arranged for me to uh, debate Jean-Pierre in, in a little town in, in Belgium. It's the only and, kind of towns uh, they have in Belgium. <laughs> well, actually, <laughs> so very little, very charming town. Anyway, uh, so uh, we in uh, uh, Virginie van Vassenov agreed to moderate the debate, and it was agreed that we would each make presentations, uh, and then. Virginie would pose questions and the audience would pose questions and so on. And uh, so I prepared my PowerPoint presentation. I think it was, uh, you know, as I recall, it was like four megabytes. Jean-Pierre pre uh, prepared his. It, his was so big that it was very hard to transmit it to me. It was 646 megabytes PowerPoint, right? <laughs> and it was a classic neuroscience snow job PowerPoint, right? Every slide was actually about 10 slides, right? You had, uh, it was yeah. subdivided into all these little panels and there were great pictures here and then some graph here and another graph there and another picture and a neuron here and a brain there and a scan here and so on, right? Every slide was like that. Um. So uh, he made his presentation and I made my presentation. But I was coming at him from ways that you learned from uh, the book and even more in what I've subsequently written uh, from the biophysics and the efficiency and the, you know how many ATPs were being hydrolyzed and so on on the various theories. And he, he was completely unprepared for someone uh, arguing, particularly a, you know, a cognitive scientist like quote me, uh, arguing on those grounds. Anyway, uh, he made his presentation. I made mine. Version he asked her questions. The well, I mean, you'll see where. And he would respond at great lengths to her questions and. Uh, I knew that a lot of what he was saying would strike many people as kind of blowing, blow hard. And so I kept my answers as concise and short as I possibly could. So he spoke maybe 95% of the time, and I spoke 5% of the time during the quote debate part of it, the back and forth. But I have to say, in all modesty, that most of my punches landed and none of his did. <laughs> uh, and I think he thought the same thing because the next morning, uh, Pierre Pica and I were having breakfast when he got a phone call from Jean-Pierre. And 
he had to hold the phone away from the ear. I could hear Jean-Pierre screaming at him. Jean-Pierre was apoplectic. He was so angry that he berated Pierre uh, for uh, for half an hour. I mean, Pierre had to sort of walk off to another part of the restaurant. Um, and, and he was very, very angry. And uh, he refused to allow them to put the, to, they recorded it, of course, but he refused permission for them to upload the... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so there's no video evidence, only eyewitness testimony. Yeah, you could, they, of course, he gave permission for them to upload his presentation, and I gave permission for them to upload mine, so you can see the presentations, but you can't see the debate. That's <laughs> Hey, Cody here. So as I've mentioned on the show before, I am graduating from my PhD program pretty soon here, hopefully in spring 2022. And while that's great, it also means I have to start making plans for my next phase. And ideally, I'd like to do this. I'd like to podcast and write and be able to achieve at least semblance of what looks like a next career step producing this kind of work. So it is time for me to take the pod from something that merely exists to the next level. And part of what this entails is that I am going to be offering a premium subscription to my podcasts and writing. So one of the questions that I've been asking myself recently is, what have I learned from doing this podcast and how has it affected me personally? And so I am starting a segment called CogRev Redux, in which I listen back to my catalog of episodes, starting from my first interview over two years ago, and I edit down the original to a 30-minute show featuring the highlights of what that guest said and, and what really stuck with me over that time, as well as my own reflections on where I was when the interview was conducted, and what I was interested in, and how that's all changed. And I will also go into any backstory I have with the guest or strange behind-the-scenes antics that happened during the taping that didn't make the final cut. So I will offer two free CogRev Redux episodes in January, then from there, they will come out for premium subscribers every other week. With the premium subscription, you also get my series called Reviewed. It's Reviewed, in which I revisit, reread, or reconsider the books, movies, podcasts, or other content that has most impacted me throughout the years. In this show, I love to ask people about the books that have most influence their thinking, and so now I want to explore my own answers to those questions in greater depth. There's also a new series I'm launching called The Grad Student's Guide to Podcasting. It features everything I've learned while doing Cognitive Revolution through my PhD, as well as interviews with other graduate student podcasters. That will be coming out throughout January 2022. Anyway, like I said, this is part of me building out toward my next phase, so I really do appreciate the support. If you are interested in signing up for a subscription, you can check out codycommerce.substack.com. That's codycommerce.substack.com. Even if you just sign up for the free version, it helps a ton to support my future work. Okay, thank you for hearing me out. Now, back to the show. 
Uh, so I, I, you mentioned this recent paper, and it sounds like maybe you're beginning to weigh in on where this symbolic capacity might come from. Um, yeah, or like, you know, how, how have we progressed on this since, you know, 2009 is when your, uh, you know, that, that book was published and, you know, uh, yeah. So, so how, how have we been progressing on this? What have we learned? And also feel free to just include some wild speculation. Uh, if, if, you know, there's things that you think we might find in the future that's, uh, we, we haven't quite gotten to yet. Well, my answer to how things have progressed would be classified by almost everybody, and I wouldn't disagree uh, as wild speculation. Uh, well, it depends exactly on your definition. I think it's has some pretty strong arguments underlying it, but uh, the so in that book, we suggest that we say, look, the Synapse, historically, as a concept, was never intended to be a repository for information. It was in, I mean, that slogan in, as you probably know, in, in the Society for Neuroscience is neurons that fire together, wire together, right? Well, wire captures what an association has traditionally been and what a synapse has traditionally been, namely it's a conductor of activation, right? It's not a register. It's not uh, the reason that there's there's so much hand waving about how you store a duration is not that it's impossible to think of how you might store one in a synapse. In fact, I routinely suggest to the people who are waving their hands uh, at least two fairly fairly obvious possibilities, which they always or most of them reject. Then uh, I say, okay, if you don't like either of those, what's yours? Well, there are a lot of synapses and uh, so on, right? Uh, that is, they don't answer the question. You, I don't know if you've ever uh, viewed the heart. Were you at Harvard when uh, when I spoke there in the uh, at the MBB and uh, with John Lisman as uh, as the discussant? Yeah, uh, I don't believe I was. Oh well, that's that uh, YouTube. The last I checked had several thousand views. Um, Anyway, I posed this question to John, I, who was a discussant, right? And uh, at the end of my talk, I said, now, John, I hope in your discussion of my talk, you will address the following question. And he, which is, how would you store a number in a synapse? And number being an example of information, right? a fact. You know? And he ignored that. He didn't. He, showed slides of his own and argued for his own favorite theory rather than discussing mine. But that's almost always what discussants do, so I'm used to that. But then I, this was unusual in that I got a rebuttal. I got to speak again a bit, and I said, John, you duck. I said, uh, uh, I asked you at the end, uh, on your story, how would you store a number in a synapse? So, John, I'm giving you a second chance. <laughs> he ducked again <laughs> and, and people began to laugh right <laughs> he, he wouldn't go there right <laughs> so so this just illustrates the the point i'm calling attention to in that first sentence in the recent paper right that neuroscientists 
simply refuse to think about the question of how you store a fact in the brain. But when you step back and you say, so, okay, back in the behaviorist days, they might have said, well, you know, human beings, they have facts in their brain, but human beings are very unusual. This is sort of closet dualism that you see uh, peeking through even among sworn behaviorists. Uh, but I, but these days, no one would say that, right? Because we know the rats have a cognitive map and we know they've learned the durations and we're, we're done arguing about that. That's scientific fact. Okay. Well, a, a cognitive map, right? I mean, it's a bunch of directions and distances and landmarks and snapshots, you know, images of landmarks and so on. I keep pressing on people. I say, look, what is a snapshot? Well, you know, we know what a snapshot is, particularly these days with a digital camera. It's a big array of numbers. <laughs> uh, so so uh, it, in the old days, it used to be a big array of silver halide crystals, but now it's a big array of numbers, right? So what's a snapshot in the brain? All the insect navigation people agree that the bees are storing and the ants are storing snapshots. But when you press them, okay, but if you say, well, there are numbers in the brain, oh, no, no, no. Well, you said there were snapshots in the brain. Uh, what's your what's your theory of a snapshot? But I so mean, do we have anything I, that's a candidate for what you're what you're talking about? Um, I know some yeah, of course we do. That is, if you if you in this, you see the inflammation of information theory. If you say, well, all these things that facts technically, scientifically, are information. Yeah. Uh, they limit when you know a fact it limits the possibilities right if, if I don't know someone's name then that's a very large field of possibilities and when I learn their name uh, boom the entropy collapses and but okay I, so what is the specific thing in the brain um, okay no hey, bear with me so do we know in biology, is there a structure that is devoted to preserving information in computationally accessible form? Right? And, and the answer, you know, anybody who can't answer that question just flunked the introductory course in, in biology, right? Because, because yeah, DNA, <laughs> RNA, polynucleotides, right? Hey, folks, that's been what we've been learning the last half century, right? Uh, <laughs> the, <laughs> these molecules are full of information in an absolutely clear, precise, scientific state. Since you can ask me how much information, and I'll say, give me a moment and I'll tell you just how much information, right? So, and, and of course, that's because they look exactly like the bit register in a computer, right? Uh, the, <laughs> and the, the registers, they're full of information too, right? Uh, we've understood again since the very early days of computing that if you want to store information, you need bit registers or the any physical equi uh, equivalent, right? Now, the physical realization of bit registers have been changing every six months during the last 50 years, right? Um, but it's clear to all people who know the 
the requisite mathematics that that the uh, well, there's no arguing that the that the basis of heredity is a digital scheme, right? And it has a code, and there are elements in the code, and there are words in the code, and these days when we understand homeobox genes, we even have some insight into how the code is read in such a way that it can create the uh, bodily structure that it codes for, right? Um, so those molecules were are the only biological structure that we know beyond argument stores information. All right. Maybe it's those molecules or another molecule that looks an awful lot like them, right? <laughs> because what you have to focus on is not the molecule itself, but what is it about that molecule that makes it such a perfect information storage device? And physicists have calculated the DNA is probably within maybe at least 10% of as efficient a information storage medium as can be realized at ordinary uh, temperatures and uh, pressures, right? You can put more information in that structure. You can put something approximating the maximum amount of information that basic physics tells you could be put in a given volume of space. All right. And it's thermodynamically stable, which the other big thing about a memory is that you want it to last. And of course, these days when they're figuring <laughs> when they're figuring out that hey look there's this uh, bone from a woman in a cave in Russia who had a Neanderthal father and a Denisovan mother or maybe I've got it the other way around <laughs> they know that from reading the DNA and that was fifty thousand years ago right well all right that's what physicists call thermodynamic stability and that's when anyone who builds computers says whoa, we want some of that, right? Uh, because uh, that's you can put an awful lot of information in there and you don't have to feed it energy in order to preserve the information. It just stays there and, and so on, right? So that, it's conceptually, that's what DNA is, right? Okay, so we're looking for something like that. It could be, uh, my favorite guess is RNA, which is a very close cousin of DNA, right? Which has all the same properties, right? So why is it good at storing it information? Because it has these four different elements and there are no constraints on the sequence in which they can be uh, put, right? So you can put any one of the four right next to any other. So you can build the strings out of these elements, right? And uh, any engineer looks at that and says, whoa, I can put information in that. In fact, <laughs> in one of my talks not too long ago, one of the engineering people who introduced me showed a video that had been passed through bacterial DNA. <laughs> that is, the, huh? the, the frames in the video had all been stored in bacterial DNA and then read back out of the DNA into the digital thing that would, um, right? So these days, people are storing poems in DNA and so on. They're 
they're talking about firing uh, missiles to for other galaxies that will have, have our history written in DNA and so on. Oh, okay. Right? Wow. okay, so so this is yeah. an information storing medium, and it, most importantly, it tells us what an information, as far as anyone knows, this is what an information storing medium has to look like. Yeah. Right? And it's not what a synapse looks like. Right? Yeah. Uh, all right. So if I'm forced to guess, um, I would argue that the symbols are realized at the molecular level in molecules that either are polynucleotides or look a lot like, you know, have the same properties as polynucleotides um, inside neurons. And I've been hugely encouraged to, I began to think that way, that you can sort of see that peeking through in the book, but that's 10 years ago. But four or five years after that book was published, I got an email from people I had argued with in Sweden many years before, in which I had suggested, I didn't put any of this in print because I knew people would think I was stark raving mad. But I told them, look, the synapse story is a failure. They, they were working on the synapse story. And then they said, well, smarty, what do you think it might be? And I say, well, look, I don't know. But if I had to guess, I would think the symbols are molecular. So years went by. They continued to do their experiments. This is Jerry Heslow at Lund University and his postdoc, Friedrich uh, Johansson. And, and I got an email one day. I'd totally forgotten that I'd even, I didn't even recognize the name. I came from Sweden, and the subject line said, "You were right." <laughs> you don't give me, you don't give many emails like that. <laughs> so of course, I clicked on that one first, uh, and they had a draft of a paper from their latest research. And Frederick Johansson had shown beyond reasonable argument that the memory for the duration in eye blink conditioning is inside the individual Purkinje cell, and. They tried to get this published in science, and the reviewers went bananas. You, you, you can't imagine the kind of shit you run into once uh, somebody's ox has really been thoroughly gored. Um, and uh, so I, I was, in those days, you could still communicate papers to the PNAS. So it eventually found its way into the PNAS. And slowly but surely, it, uh, the neuroscientists, uh, at first they just pretended they hadn't heard about it, hadn't read it, and so on. And now they say, yeah, okay, I'll get more, 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 more. Uh, but, you know, once it's inside the neuron, I mean, once you get inside the neuron, what do you got? Well, you got molecules or, you know, molecular-level structures. So... Uh, so that emboldened me, right? And I thought, okay... Now that I have at least some evidence that it must be molecular, I'm, I'm going to go public with these crazy ideas. Uh, so that's what I've been pushing uh, lately uh, as God. the answer to where the symbols are. Randy, that's so fascinating. Uh, thank you so much for taking the time to talk today. You've been really generous right. with your time, and uh, I'd like to wrap it up here. But uh, thanks so much for taking the time to talk today. It was, it was a huge pleasure. I enjoyed it. That was my conversation with Randy Gallistel. As I mentioned, you can check out the rest of my work at my Substack newsletter. That's codycommerce.substack.com. 
Uh, and as always, thank you for listening. I'll be back here usually in a week, but actually this time only in a couple days uh, with another episode of Cognitive Evolution. That is the second part to the Randy Gallistel episode. Um, this one was the theory. That one will be the story. So um, later on this week, there is more Cognitive Evolution coming your way. Thank you.